Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 26, The Cause. To understand the political chaos of 1854, consider Jesse O. Norton. Norton was a New Englander who moved to Illinois in his 20s and set up a law practice in Joliet. He pursued politics and in 1852 won election to the U.S. House of Representatives as a Whig. Two years later, Norton faced a landscape torn asunder by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Illinois Whigs opposed the act but couldn't agree on tactics. Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas, the bill's sponsor, made support for the law a loyalty test for the Illinois Democratic Party. As a result, he drove many anti-slavery Democrats out of the organization. And new parties were rising to occupy spaces ceded by the major ones. Norton opposed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and he didn't shirk from the chaos. He embraced it. First, Norton announced that he would seek re-election as a Whig. But Norton also joined the Know-Nothings, the secretive anti-immigrant order infecting what remained of his party's infrastructure. And when Whigs in his district failed to hold a nominating convention, Norton accepted the nomination of a new, explicitly anti-slavery organization. In Michigan, Wisconsin, and Northern Illinois, it called itself the Republican Party. Local Democrats were positively gleeful at Norton's apparent embrace of radical politics. The Joliet Signal, a Democratic newspaper, even invoked the spirit of the Whig Party's founder. It said Norton had disrespected, quote, the ashes of the immortal clay. Abraham Lincoln spoke on Norton's behalf in the 1854 campaign. Lincoln remained a loyal Whig but his priority was getting anti-Nebraska candidates elected. So, Lincoln simply ignored the Republican Party's nomination of Norton and told voters Norton was a Whig. It wasn't wrong, but it wasn't the whole truth. Yet voters in the district didn't seem to care what Norton called himself or whether Clay's ashes stuck to his feet. The congressman won re-election with a bigger share of the vote than he received in 1852. Norton's tripartisan politics were unorthodox, but reflective of a year when Americans kicked over their old political altars. The Kansas-Nebraska Act annihilated the two-party duopoly and left politicians and voters rootless. Between 1854 and 1856, the United States was a multi-party democracy. It was confusing for everyone involved. In Hartford, Connecticut, some 23 parties ended up on the ballot. Priorities seemed just as scattered. Lincoln and many other Americans lined up around Kansas, Nebraska. But others sorted themselves over immigration. And still others organized around the prohibition of alcohol. As a result, Voters in 1854 sent an ideologically diverse number of legislators to state houses around the country. These created assemblies whose actions seemed hard to predict. 
Lincoln welcomed anyone who would fight Kansas-Nebraska and was happy to overlook differences on other matters. But as he tried to build a coalition, he remained aloof from the new organizations. Republicans inspired by Lincoln's triumphant October 4th speech against Kansas-Nebraska organized a meeting shortly afterward and placed Lincoln's name among the members of the Central Committee. Lincoln, not ready to leave the Whigs, quietly rode out of town the night the new party met, saying he had business outside Springfield. Later, Lincoln wrote to Ichabod Cotting, an abolitionist and Republican organizer, that he was, quote, perplexed that his name had ended up there. In a carefully crafted message, he wrote, quote, I suppose my opposition to the principle of slavery is as strong as that of any member of the Republican Party. But I had also supposed that the extent to which I feel authorized to carry that opposition practically was not at all satisfactory to that party. Lincoln did not exactly spurn the endorsement. But in fighting Douglas in 1854, Lincoln preferred binding old parties to the creation of new ones. Keeping the coalition together required a delicate touch. The alliances sprouting in the North in 1854 rarely called themselves Republicans. They preferred anti-Nebraska, fusionist, or anti-administration. They drew Whigs, Free Soilers, and anti-slavery Democrats. Made up of diverse parts, the members rarely agreed on anything besides opposing Kansas-Nebraska. But the groups appealed to Northern Whigs, who no longer had to swallow their aversion to slavery to placate a Southern wing. As historian Michael Holt writes, quote, Anti-Nebraska coalitions seemed preferable to the Whig Party precisely because they were exclusively Northern, precisely because they seemed prepared to meet the threat posed by Southern slaveholders more directly and adamantly the Northern Whig organizations that preached the necessity of party fellowship with Southerners, and precisely because they called for an end to partisan disputes that seemed outmoded or inconsequential when compared to the sectional threat. The question of permanent fusion divided Illinois Whigs. Whigs from central and southern Illinois, like Lincoln, wanted the Whigs to continue their independent existence. But Northern Illinois Whigs had made successful alliances with Free Soilers. They also resented Central Illinois' domination of the state party. As a result, these Whigs were much more open to fusion and the Republican label. As historian Matthew Pinsker writes, quote, Many Republicans resented the Springfield influence that long dominated Illinois politics. The regional jealousy obscured the comparatively small ideological and social differences between fusionist leaders in the North and Center. The rise of the Know-Nothings further complicated these calculations. The Know-Nothings grew out of nativist groups that had been active since the mid-1840s. They were anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. They had a secretive, hierarchical structure that started with local lodges and moved all the way up to a national council. Their password was, have you seen Sam? Short for Uncle Sam. Their standard answer to questions about the organization was, I know nothing. When editor Horace Greeley mocked them as the know-nothings, they embraced the label. Their goal was, quote, to resist the insidious policy of the Church of Rome and other influence against the institutions of our country 
by placing in all offices in the gift of the people, or by appointment, none but native-born Protestant citizens. Holt says the Know-Nothings were less a party than a pressure group. Quote, They were a secret society that sought to secure the election of men who agreed with their goals. They did so either by infiltrating existing parties and seeking to control their nominations, or by throwing the weight of the organization behind candidates already nominated by existing parties. Their distaste for traditional party organization particularly appealed to the Whigs, who engaged in an odd kind of square dance with the Know-Nothings. The Know-Nothings infiltrated Whig organizations. Whig candidates allowed Know-Nothings to nominate them. One thought they could control the other. But the Know-Nothings usually came out on top. Still, many Whigs detested the Know-Nothings. Lincoln was never a nativist and publicly denounced nativism as early as 1844. This was both moral principle and smart policy. Illinois' fast-growing immigrant population made nativism political suicide. When whispers spread that Whig Congressman Richard Yates had joined a know-nothing lodge, Lincoln quickly dashed off a statement Yates could use to deny the charge. But know-nothing secrecy also meant Whig politicians couldn't be sure how deeply the group penetrated their traditional constituencies. Lincoln, focused on holding the anti-Nebraska coalition together, stayed publicly silent about the know-nothings. By doing so, he opened himself up to charges that he himself was a know-nothing. This would have consequences for him. Despite external threats and internal stresses, the Anti-Nebraska Coalition delivered stunning results during the 1854 elections. In New York, 29 of 31 representatives elected to the House were anti-Nebraska. In Pennsylvania, 21 of 25 congressmen were pledged to oppose the act. In Illinois, the results amounted to a revolution. Lincoln wrote to his friend Orville Browning about a week after the election that it appeared the anti-Nebraska coalition had captured the Illinois House of Representatives and cut into the Democrats' control of the state Senate. Nearly two decades of Democratic hegemony in Illinois had ended. The Joliet Signal mournfully wrote, quote, Never before have the democracy of Illinois been so thoroughly vanquished. The results meant doom for incumbent U.S. Senator James Shields, a staunch Douglas ally with whom Lincoln had nearly fought a duel in 1842. At the time, state legislatures elected U.S. Senators. Whatever their other differences, the anti-Nebraska legislators would not return a Douglas crony to the U.S. Senate. The Whigs believed their votes pushed the coalition over the top, and they wanted a prominent member of their party for the seat. Lincoln recognized the opportunity. He called the U.S. Senate, quote, a place in which I would feel more consciously able to discharge the duties required and where there is more chance to make reputation and less danger of losing it. Lincoln's friends eagerly joined his campaign. His old friend Joseph Gillespie, newly elected to the Illinois House, later wrote, quote, We, his friends, regarded this as perhaps his last chance for that high position. 
Shortly after the November 7th election, Lincoln reached out to local Whigs and newly elected legislators. On November 11th, Lincoln wrote to Jacob Harding, an attorney in Paris, Illinois, about a local Whig that had been elected to the legislature. Quote, If this is so, then could you not make a mark with him for me, for U.S. Senator? I really have some chance. Later that month, he wrote to Thomas Henderson, a newly elected representative, quote, It has come round that a Whig may, by possibility, be elected to the U.S. Senate. And I want the chance of being the man. But there were problems ahead. The election created an incredible turnover in the Illinois General Assembly. In the House of Representatives, 71 of the 75 members had not served in the prior session. No one could say where they leaned. As Pinsker writes, quote, Quite a few of the new members had been elected independent of either the Whig or Democratic parties. A survey of the winning candidates revealed almost a dozen self-applied political labels. Jesse Norton wrote to Lincoln, quote, Amongst the Whigs of my district, you are the decided choice. But the delegation are a good deal mixed as far as old party designations, though all anti-Nebraska. Further complicating matters, Lincoln himself was a new House member. In the lead-up to the election, William Jane, the brother of Mary's friend Julia Trumbull, placed an ad in the Sangamo Journal announcing Lincoln's candidacy for the Illinois House. Mary Lincoln, knowing her husband, stormed to the office and demanded a retraction. The General Assembly was a political step down for a man who had already served a term in the U.S. Congress. More importantly, members of the General Assembly could not stand as U.S. Senate candidates. Jane went to Lincoln's home to try to get him to reconsider. He found Lincoln, quote, the saddest man I ever saw, the gloomiest. Jane went on to say, quote, he walked up and down the floor, almost crying and to all persuasion to let his name stand in the papers, he said, no, I can't. You don't know all. I say, you don't begin to know one half, and that is enough. But Jane did not strike Lincoln's name from the candidate list. Lincoln made no further objection. On November 7th, Springfield's voters gave Lincoln a large majority, returning him to the House 13 years after he had left it. But his mind was clearly on higher office. On November 25th, he formally declined his election to the House. A special election was called for the seat before Christmas. Denied their preferred candidate, local Whigs mounted a lackluster campaign and unexpectedly lost. James Shields called it, quote, the best Christmas joke of the season. Republicans in Northern Illinois weren't laughing. Lincoln needed their support to win the Senate seat. But his resignation from the House cost the anti-Nebraska coalition a vote. That made Republicans furious, and it reminded them of their other concerns with Lincoln. Lincoln wanted changes to the Fugitive Slave Law to prevent the arrest of innocent people, but he pledged to uphold the law itself. He opposed Kansas-Nebraska, but appeared willing to allow slavery into the territories acquired from Mexico if white residents wanted it. Both ideas galled Republicans. 
the abolitionist editor Zabina Eastman wrote, quote, He dares not oppose the fugitive slave law, and he would not pledge himself not to go against the admission of any more slave states. If these cannot be gotten of him, of what service would he be in the Senate when the slavery question comes up? Charles Ray, the editor of the Galena Jeffersonian, wrote to Elihu Washburn, Ray's congressman and Lincoln's ally, quote, I must confess, I am afraid of Abe. He is Southern by birth, Southern in his associations, and Southern, if I mistake not, in his sympathies. His wife, you know, is a Todd of a pro-slavery family, and so are all of his kin. Lincoln tried to persuade the Republicans that he could be trusted. He got a major boost from his old congressional messmate Joshua Giddings, a hero to the abolitionists. Giddings declared that he would, quote, walk clear to Illinois if he could get Lincoln elected to the U.S. Senate. Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon, a self-declared abolitionist, wrote to Eastman, quote, Although he does not say much, you may depend on it. Mr. Lincoln is all right. Lincoln also urged surrogates to remind Northern Illinois officials that he always supported projects for the region, especially the Illinois and Michigan Canal. The efforts of Lincoln's surrogates, along with promises to support the nascent Republican Party for key roles in the new state legislature, brought the party into the fold. But Eastman couldn't shake his doubts. He wrote in his newspaper, quote, Mr. Lincoln is a know-nothing and expects the full vote of the know-nothings. Lincoln maintained his silence, and the untrue and unchallenged statement would damage him. Stephen Douglas, meanwhile, urged his colleagues to support his loyal ally Shields, telling them to, quote, nail his flag to the mast. Douglas also leaned hard into the know-nothing issue, quote, the Nebraska fight is over, and know-nothingism has taken its place as the chief issue into the future. If the Irish-born Shields was defeated, Douglas said, it was because the Whigs would never send an Irishman to the Senate. But Douglas badly misread the legislature. Nebraska was first and foremost on legislators' minds as they assembled on February 5, 1855. The galleries of the Illinois House were packed with spectators. Abraham Lincoln was in attendance, and Mary Lincoln may have been among the spectators. On the floor, Stephen Logan, Lincoln's old law partner and a newly elected House member, managed Lincoln's forces. The first ballot was encouraging. Lincoln, who needed 50 votes, got ballots from 45 of the representatives and senators present. Shields got 41. But on the second ballot, Lincoln slipped to 43 votes while Shields held at 41, totals that repeated on the third ballot. Lincoln needed more votes, but the pickings were slim. He was losing support from people who should have been allies. J.L.D. Morrison, a longtime Whig, refused to vote for Lincoln out of suspicion that he was a know-nothing. Morrison's wife, was Catholic. Then, there were Norman Judd, John Palmer, Buttrand Cook, Henry Baker, and George Allen. They were five anti-Nebraska Democrats who refused to vote for Lincoln. 
All five hated Douglas. But they hated abolitionists just as much and could not shake their lifelong aversion to the Whigs. Gillespie said, quote, Having been elected as Democrats, they would not vote for anyone but a Democrat for U.S. Senator. I tried hard to persuade them to go with us. They stated they had no objection to Mr. Lincoln except his political antecedents, but that they would not sustain themselves at home if they were to vote for him, but expressed regrets that they were so circumstantiated. The Quintet also felt a Whig couldn't broaden the appeal of the anti-Nebraska coalition in Illinois. They wanted a coalition Democrat. Their choice was Lyman Trumbull. Trumbull was a lean, bespectacled judge who had once served as Illinois Secretary of State. Some people thought him haughty and selfish, or at least ungrateful by the political standards of the time. He was certainly aloof. Trumbull's speeches read like colder versions of Lincoln's addresses, sharing the rigorous logic, but not the warmth or humor. On the positive side, Trumbull had a sharp mind and a courageous streak. Born in Connecticut in 1813, Trumbull taught for a time in South Carolina before moving to Illinois in 1837, where he studied law. He married Julia Jane, Mary Lincoln's best friend and the sister of William Jane, and built a successful law practice. Unlike Lincoln, Trumbull never enjoyed riding the circuit. He did like politics and had a fanatical devotion to the Democratic Party's economic policies. When the Democratic governor of Illinois tried to extend the life of the State Bank of Illinois in the early 1840s, Trumbull spoke so vehemently for its dissolution that the governor asked him to resign as Secretary of State. More forgiving voters sent Trumbull to the Illinois Supreme Court in 1848 and re-elected him in 1852. Trumbull was no abolitionist but he opposed the spread of slavery and never hid his dislike for the institution. Trumbull strongly condemned the lynching of the abolitionist editor Elijah Lovejoy in 1837, writing to his father, quote, Had I been in Alton, I would have cheerfully marched to the rescue of Mr. Lovejoy and his property. In 1845, Trumbull successfully argued the case of Jarreau versus Jarreau, which annihilated what legal basis for slavery remained in Illinois. Outraged by the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Trumbull stepped down from his Supreme Court seat in 1854 to run for Congress. In the unstable politics of the year, neither the Whigs nor the Democrats held at conventions in his district. Trumbull's opponent relied on Douglas's backing. Whigs in Trumbull's district stepped down to support him. The judge prevailed in a bitter contest, thanks to the German immigrant community, who were strongly anti-slavery. The anti-Nebraska Democrats saw Trumbull as a proven vote-getter and reliable Douglas foe. He seemed like an ideal foundation for the future. The Douglas Democrats, meanwhile, had been laying plans of their own. They dutifully voted for Shields through the first six ballots, but knew he couldn't win. At a prearranged moment, they would shift to Joel Matson, the governor of Illinois. Matson was a wealthy contractor who had traveled everywhere from Georgia to Canada. Much of Matson's fortune came from speculating on the Illinois and Michigan Canal. As a state senator, 
he corruptly used his office for inside information. While chair of the Senate Finance Committee in the 1840s, Matson allocated $1.6 million for work on the canal, securing a good portion for himself in the process. Elected governor in 1852, Matson managed to get Illinois' first public school law through the legislature and built a handsome mansion across the street from the official governor's residence. A statue of Stephen Douglas stood over the doorway of Matson's home. Matson was not an inspiring speaker or deep thinker. John Bunn, a contemporary of Lincoln's, said Matson made himself, quote, socially agreeable to the grandees on Springfield's aristocrat hill and to members of the legislature. Like an aristocrat, the governor could dissemble. While Matson publicly supported the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he expressed enough doubt about it in private to allow people to read whatever they wanted into his stance. On the seventh ballot, the Douglas forces made their move. Shields' votes suddenly moved to Matson, who got 44 votes to Lincoln's 38. As Bunn remembered, quote, There was intense excitement when the solid Democratic vote was changed from Shields to Matson. Trumbull got nine votes on the ballot. On the eighth, Matson rose to 46 and Trumbull to 18, while Lincoln fell to 27. On the ninth, Matson got to 47, three shy of victory. Trumbull had 35. Lincoln was down to 15 loyalists. Some of Shields' supporters, angry at their abandonment, quietly fed information to Lincoln's remaining block. What they told them was alarming. Matson's forces were trying to pick off Trumbull's supporters. Historians have evidence Matson bribed members of the legislature for votes, dangling contracts in front of Democrats in exchange for their support. Lincoln apparently heard that Frederick Day, a Trumbull supporter from LaSalle County, was about to get a contract for his vote. Lincoln could fight on, hoping Matson's momentum would stall and that he could drag voting into a second day. But this was exceptionally risky. Lincoln objected to Matson's corruption, but a Matson victory would also give Douglas a shot in the arm and raise questions about the effectiveness of the anti-Nebraska coalition. Gillespie remembered approaching Lincoln and asking for direction. Quote, Lincoln said, unhesitatingly, you ought to drop me and go for Trumbull. That is the only way you can defeat Matson. Judge Logan came up and insisted on running Lincoln still. But the latter said, if you do, you will lose both Trumbull and myself, and I think the cause in this case to be preferred to men. Writing a few days later to Elihu Washburn, Lincoln said that by that point, all he could do was stop Matson. Lincoln wrote, quote, So, I determined to strike at once, and accordingly advised my remaining friends to go for him, which they did. It was the best choice. But it was painful to support Trumbull, who opposed all of the Whigs' most cherished ideals. As the final vote echoed in the chamber, Logan remembered Lincoln looked, quote, cut and mortified. Lincoln's remaining allies on the floor felt the same. Bunn later wrote that they yielded, quote, with the most obstinate reluctance. 
George Waters refused to vote for Trumbull and had to be persuaded to change his mind. Logan, who cast his ballot for Trumbull amid a, quote, breathless silence, voted with tears in his eyes. As the anti-Nebraska forces erupted in celebration, Lincoln walked away from the chamber. Later, Joseph Gillespie tried to comfort his friend. He later said, quote, I never saw him so dejected. He said the fates seemed to be against him, and he thought he would never strive for office again. He could bear defeat inflicted by his enemies with a pretty good grace, but it was hard to be wounded in the house of his friends. The Whigs felt cheated. They repeatedly alluded to the first ballot and the fact that Lincoln's initial 45 votes had lost to Trumbull's five. Gillespie remembered, quote, There was considerable bitterness displayed by some of the old Whigs who regarded it as an affront put upon men who had belonged to that party. Judge David Davis, who had not been present for the vote, but had helped Lincoln with strategy, later wrote, quote, If I had been there, there were 10 members of the legislature who would have appreciated the fact that 46 men should not yield their preference to five. Mary, remembering how her best friend's brother had put Lincoln up for the General Assembly, felt betrayed. Her relationship with Julia Trumbull never recovered. But Lincoln remained magnanimous. When Lyman Trumbull and his wife arrived at a party that had been planned as a victory celebration for Lincoln, a guest remarked that Lincoln must be disappointed. He replied, quote, Not too disappointed to congratulate my friend Trumbull and went to shake Trumbull's hand. Lincoln said nothing critical, publicly or privately, about the five anti-Nebraska Democrats who cost him the Senate. Gillespie said Lincoln, quote, manifested no bitterness toward Mr. Judd or the other anti-Nebraska Democrats by whom practically he was beaten, but evidently thought that their motives were right. And over time, both Lincoln and his allies would see the wisdom in electing Trumbull. As Lincoln wrote to Washburn, quote, The Nebraska men confess they have it worse than anything that could have happened. It is a great consolation to see them worse whipped than I am. In the Senate, Trumbull drove Douglas crazy. He pierced the little giant's miasma of deception with a calm, logical manner that sent the senior senator into fits of rage and won Trumbull respect from the anti-Nebraska forces there. The abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner later wrote, quote, Trumbull is a hero and more than a match for Douglas. Illinois, in sending him, has done much to make me forget that she sent Douglas. The anti-Nebraska Democrats' prediction that Trumbull would help draw Democrats into the coalition proved correct. Over the next two years, the unstable coalition would turn into a real party. Trumbull and many other Democrats in the anti-Nebraska coalition knew they owed a debt to Lincoln. By stepping aside, Lincoln won their loyalty. Many of them, most notably Norman Judd, would become key allies for Lincoln in the years ahead and start cementing the Illinois Republican Party. Lincoln had spent the better part of his life as a Whig. Its causes and principles moved him more deeply than religion did. But before 1854, 
Lincoln submerged his own thoughts and feelings in the service of the Whigs' platform. When the Whigs ran out of arguments in the early 1850s, Lincoln lapsed into silence. But the extension of slavery and the threat it mounted to American democracy took the dead voice of Henry Clay from his mouth and allowed him to speak on his own. It would bring him to fields up and down Illinois, where he would engage in a fierce battle with Stephen Douglas, their political futures each hanging in the balance. In the fearful years that would culminate in a slaveholder-directed apocalypse, the cause of the Republic, the hope of a more perfect union, would lead him to eloquent defenses of his nation and put his hard-earned political skills on display. Lincoln knew that a principle stoutly defended was worth more than a hundred temporary compromises. Unexpectedly, this would lead him to the presidency. We'll look at all of that when we return later this year. I hope you'll join us as we see the rise of the Republican Party, at this point a disjointed coalition, and Lincoln's corresponding ascent into the national consciousness. We'll also take another look at his family life and the nation he was fighting for. Lincoln goes from a man who is still relatively obscure in his state to a leader handed the greatest crisis in American history. It's a fascinating story, and I look forward to seeing you again for it. Again, to all of you who have tuned in or sent kind notes, thank you. Feedback means more than you know. Becoming Lincoln was written, produced, and hosted by me, Brian Lyman. Our logo design is by Robin Hammontree. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Becoming Lincoln. If you like what you've heard, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to see you again for Season 3.